this is the Baileys. He was just like the coolest customer. Like he's flying us out there and he's like, I swear to God, all he was doing was twisting this rollerblade wheel on the roof, right? It was like attached to the roof and I swear to God, it was a rollerblade wheel and he was twisting it and that moved the plane somehow. <laughs> and he was eating a fucking bowl of cereal. Wild Earth is not just the generous supporter of the bail list, they're also a one-stop shop for everything climbing, hiking and camping. They've also got a great blog with handy hacks, trip reviews and so much more. This is the bail list. Hey, I'm Nicole Robbs. This month, we're getting philosophical here at The Bail List with Ryan Siachi. He's an adventurer, author, and blogger, and he's writing a book about his attempt to climb the West Ridge of Denali. As it turns out, it was one of the most iconic bales of his climbing career, and it's shaped his approach to safety, as well as his dreams of future objectives. He gave me a peek at a couple of chapters, and I had a bunch of questions for him. Check it out. Hello, my name is Ryan Siachi. I am a writer from Brisbane. I write Zen and the Art of Climbing. And at the moment, I'm working on a new book. Uh, I'm calling it, working title is The Road to Cassine at the moment. So we're going to touch on some Denali-related topics today. And I don't know, as a climber, I, I consider myself a trad climber aspirational alpinist, uh, adventure climber, and my favourite cliff is Frog Buttress. All right. What's up, Ryan, a.k.a. Zen and the Art of Climbing? Hi, how are you doing? I'm pretty good. How are you? Um, I'm good. I'm great. Sure. <laughs> Very good. You know, I was just saying before we started rolling sound that... Um, one of the amazing things about this story is, like, we know each other pretty well, but I've never heard this story before, and I never even knew that you had done this objective. See, there's probably a lot of things that you don't know about me, Nicole, that are um, both uh, enlightening and terrifying. <laughs> He's a man of mystery. That's right. Um, so talk about your when you first decided that you might want to go to Denali. Yeah, okay. Um, I don't know when the idea came up. I don't think it was mine. Um, no, it certainly wasn't mine. Because um, I was starting to move away from big mountain objectives at the time. Um, and I think that was kind of something that initially drew me into uh, climbing was those kind of like, quote unquote, extreme hiking missions, you know, like it's... And Denali is that, at least on the West Buttress, which is the route we were doing. So it's, um, it is just a hardcore hike, you know, you're roped up, you might fall in a crevasse, but if you can walk and you can pull loads, um, and you can, you know, deal with the altitude, I suppose, it's not that technically difficult. So at the time I had kind of seen the light of like, like, I'd started to get into like trad multi-pitching really, um, sort of moved, moving away from um, sport origins of my like rock climbing experience and getting into, um, yeah, like trad multi-pitches and I was really, had a bit of a hard on for that stuff at the time. And so I thought to myself, well, gee, do I want to spend a month on Denali to maybe not top out? Or do I want to go climb some rocks, you know? And it's like, I could go in the same amount of time and even in like an alpine context you know I could have gone to the bugaboos or I could have gone to the cascades or I could have gone to the high sierra or something like that but one of my friends was like dead set wanted to go to Denali it's the tallest mountain in North America bro we gotta do it he was from um <laughs> he grew up in uh in um a lot of different places he grew, grew up in the UK, 
Boston and upstate New York, so he had this like fully retarded accent that made him sound really like not right. So Ryan's writing a book about this story, uh, which I should have mentioned at the start. Right. And one of the things that uh, I really, really wanted to know when I first started reading the first two chapters of the book was what does this guy's voice sound like? I just want to call him and oh, hear yeah, his voice. Oh yeah, it's so good. He's like, he's like. Oh, hey, man, you know, like, I, let's climb Denali, you know? And it's kind of like... Is he going to hear this and be really upset? I hope so. (laughs) No, I haven't talked to him for a long time, actually, but not because of any, like, bad blood or anything. Like, we just kind of went our separate ways. He got into skiing, and I was like, that's not a real sport. So, you know, um, anyone can fall down a mountain. You know, that's my philosophy. <laughs> no hate to the skiers out there. No. Love you all. Mwah. But, um, yeah, so it was his idea largely. His name is Alex. I spent uh, a lot of time previously in Alaska with him. Uh, and it was also, I brought along um, a couple of other friends who were just interested at the time. So um, we thought, you know, two is certainly not enough people to go up there uh, with our experience at the time. So we got... My mate um, Bill, Bill Winters, who unfortunately is uh, deceased now, uh, and my friend Adam McKenney, who is very much not deceased. He's gotten into he's gotten into ultra marathons at the moment, so um, that's weird, but cool. And you, he... Ryan, you can't just come on this podcast and slam every sport that isn't climbing. Hey, do we have a moment to talk about slackwining? Because <laughs> I'm gonna fucking shit all over it. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, we, uh, he, he got into climbing and, and in that, he was more in that walking up a hill wheelhouse because at the time he had really bad shoulder that kept like dislocating and he needed surgery for it. So walking up things was fine, but as soon as he moved his shoulder, like that was not fine, you know? So that was the team. Um, and yeah, it was Alex's idea and I just sort of fell in line, you know, like, I thought it was cool enough that I was into it, but it wouldn't have necessarily been my first choice. And did you understand, I mean, had you, was Denali on your radar at all at that point in time? Because this was 2013? 2015. Oh, 2015. Yep, uh, I believe. Yes. Yep, mid-2015. Yeah, it was. Um, And probably maybe like a year even before that then I would have been, like, more psyched for it. Um, And I'm more psyched on it now than ever, um, but not, you know, via that route. Like, I'd like to do some technical climbing on there. But it was that introduction to the place that kind of, like, was the gateway drug kind of to get me into that, I guess, that area of the world. And, um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. Like getting out there and realising that that part of the world really spoke to me kind of thing. So tell me about the preparations for beginning the expedition. Okay. So our preparation for going to Denali was like, like laughably poor, you know. Um, Not dangerous, but certainly you know, not, not with any, I guess, like long range scope. So, um, we didn't train for it. Um, we didn't really start planning it like logistics wise until probably two weeks beforehand. Um, and yeah, we just, we bought some food, we examined the topos, we, um, we planned it out all roughly. We knew like in terms of transport and stuff, how we were going to get back in and out and all that sort of jazz. We had the equipment, you know, we had like the technical equipment, but we also had like sat phones and things like that so we could communicate with the outside world, get weather reports and stuff like that and get a plane out if we, when we needed to. But in terms of like long range stuff, like, you know, I've, I've prepared more to more thoroughly to like go down the road to buy two dollars fish and chips like than I have that I did on Denali like my 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 fitness was like really almost off the couch like I did a lot of 
rock climbing in the months leading up to that. And luckily, some of the places I was, I did a lot of um, long approaches and stuff. So maybe one or two hour approaches. And I think that was the saving grace. And the other thing is I'm kind of a natural um, like endurance athlete rather than like a power or speed athlete, you know. So I am really, it's why I'm not a good sport climber, you know. I'm not powerful and I'm not good over short distances really and I have to work hard to be a half decent sport climber but like put a heavy pack on my back and a sled and like I can pull that thing for you know for months you know I should probably just go to Antarctica and just you know pull sleds for a living but um it's a bit boring so um yeah that's my other saving grace it's not that um that's my that's my kind of strength is endurance kind of stuff and, and heavy weight carriage and, and whatnot. So, and the route you decided upon was the West Buttress. Yep. Why did you, why did that particular route stand out to you? The West Buttress is just the, it's the quote unquote tourist route, you know? So just like back here, we've got the, um, the tourist tracks on uh, the Glasshouse mountains and people come to grief on them sometimes. Uh, the, the West Buttress is very much the standard route on Denali um, and people, mm, I would say it's probably got about a 50% failure rate. Um, it's like, it's not difficult by any standards, but it is a difficult mountain to to live on, you know, and it's like, it's cold, the weather's shit, the altitude is like moderate, you know, it gets up to, it's a bit, I think it's a bit over 6,000 metres, I can't remember exactly. Um, and it's not like the Himalaya where you can hire porters, um, and that someone's going to do the work for you and set up your, um, your tent and give you a hot tea and, you know, whatever it's, it's like, you've got to do the work. And, um, I think that that's a good thing. Like I, I, I don't, you're not hamstrung by the systems. Like you're not. You can go and take a guided party. They're not going to do the work for you, but they'll help you up there. Or you can just turn up and go climb. So that was part of it. It's cheap. We decided to do it because, you know, the permit fees are pretty cheap. Um, It's a big mountain. It's the tallest mountain in North America. The route we did was, you know, logistically pretty easy. Everyone else is doing it. Um, And it was just more in our wheelhouse. Like we didn't know if that was going to be even biting off a little bit more than we could chew on the West Buttress. So we certainly weren't going to go and do anything harder because we just didn't have the experience. What were the factors that came into play in terms of things that you were worried about that might stop you from getting to the top? Mostly, I don't know. I think that the, I think that the things that, we were worried about probably changed as the expedition went on. So I guess at the start we were worried about whether or not we just, we had the experience, you know, like whether or not um, this thing was just too big for us, you know. And um, I guess the further we went up, the more we realised that if it's like, you know, if you're going to eat an elephant, how do you do it? You eat it one bite at a time, you know. So it's like with Denali, you just chip away at it. Um, and eventually get up the top, you know. But the thing that stopped us and the thing that we became increasingly worried about was was time and weather. So I had been in the States for already, like, this was coming up to three months for me, and I was like, well, i gotta, I got to be out of here but in three weeks. Like, my visa's about to run out, and I'll get deported, you know. Or I mean, like, they've got to come and find you on Denali first. Well, that's it. But then they will. And then, like, they'll stomp me with their jackboots and put me in prison for a while. And then and then I'll never be able to go back, you know. So I was a bit worried about that. And there's a lot of things I still want to do in the States. So I wanted to make sure I could get back, you know. Um, but, yeah, so, and and we knew that the weather could pin us down for a while. And that if that happened, well, you know, we would run out of time basically we had enough supplies so you found yourself a weather window though we thought we did we (laughs) yeah we uh so we basically over the course of maybe let's say little under two weeks 
we found our way up to what's called, it's sometimes called Basin Camp, but most people call it like 14, 14 Camp or 14,000 Camp. So that's kind of like... And I'm assuming that's at 14,000 feet. That's, that's why right. it's called that. Okay. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, we'll call that roughly 4,000 metres in the new money. Yeah. Um, and you get up there, it's pretty sheltered and it's a good place to base yourself for a little while and acclimatise and, and whatever. Um, and then we had this like probably like pretty good window where we thought we could get up to high camp and then we could take a rest day and then we could get up to the summit, back down, take another rest day and then hoof it back out of there. Um, so we, we moved up some, some gear in anticipation of that and then eventually... You moved gear up to the high camp? Yeah, not all the way. So we moved gear from 14 camp to about halfway up between there and high camp and came back down. And we used that as like a little acclimatization thing. And um, that's actually the most technical section of the whole route. So 14 camp up to the actual West Buttress proper is what they call it, the head wall. So it's a, it's not very steep in, in reality. It's probably at times maybe 50 55 degree ice tops and it's always got a fixed rope on it because guided teams go up there so really all you need to do is be able to operate a juba and if you can do that you're fine you know so you just walk up it with a heavy pack and you get the thing up there so we kind of shuttling gear up and we ended up getting up to high camp and we thought to ourselves oh we're pretty good here we're you know take a break and we'll be okay and then we got a weather report that basically said well instead of having two to three more days of good weather we're going to have one more day of good weather or one and a half days I think I'm not exactly sure I just want to talk about your army skills here because <laughs> you mentioned that uh in in the book chapter sure um so explain that you you basically you were the guy who was receiving these reports because you were the only one that could decode them not that i could decode them it's just that everyone else would get frustrated with the shitty old technology that we were using so um we we had this sat phone that i swear to god looked like have you ever seen american psycho yeah so you know like the 80s and it's like oh look at my new mobile phone and it's like a briefcase with a phone on it you know like that like this this phone was like Wall Street yuppie from like early 1980s technology and we're talking this is 2015 you know and I think that they they all like that like I don't think it was just that we had a really bad one I think they're just really shit and they look like yeah they've got this like dodgy antenna that you have to face towards the sky and it's like easily broken off for a thing that's worth like thousands of dollars or whatever and it's got this like big chunky like number pad that seriously looks like a nokia 3310 and it's got like the um you know the little lcd screen and it's just like terrible so i guess i just had a um i I, in the army, I had like learned to deal with less than good equipment. Let's just say um, we like to say in the army that the uh, the equipment is always made by the lowest bidder. So basically, who can ever make the equipment for the cheapest price and for it still to be roughly functional? They are the people who get the tender. So um, I think that that was my. Um, they're like, here you go. You can operate this piece of shit. Like, <laughs> it's it's all it's all you, bro. You know. So yeah, that's it. Just ended up falling to me, and um, I don't know if there was anything else like that, but um, I think we mostly shared the load in in all other things, like you know, making water and all that sort of thing. But um, I was also the uh, MSR whisper light stove. I, I I like to say I'm the whisper light whisperer. Like I can repair one of those things pretty good. So <laughs> Google that if you Google image search that if you don't know what it is or oh, I yeah. might put it up. Or on... I can do a you know, like an e book or a like a, I'll do a Zoom meeting <laughs> do a with gear you or review. something. Yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> Whisper lights are the bomb. I'll yeah. I'll put it up on uh, on our socials. There you go. At the bail list. Um so the weather would have been pretty good up until that point. Was there any inkling that things were going south? It was surprisingly good. Um, I 
remember going to Denali thinking it was going to be a lot worse than it was. But that's all relative, you know. It's like how people are like, you know, oh, you climb really hard and you're like, but in comparison to old mate, like I don't climb that hard. It's all relative, you know. But I had just spent, you know, I'd done three trips, I think, to the Patagonian ice cap, the northern ice cap in um, in Chile. And it's like the weather there is like horrific, you know. We're talking, I spent seven days straight in a tent one time. Just the only time coming out was to dig our tent out so we didn't die. So, you know, seven day storms and things like that. So up in Denali, um, I was expecting really bad weather, but it just wasn't as bad as I was probably used to at the time. Um, and it wasn't as cold as I thought it would be either. I remember most of the time I was kicking around in this like mid-weight puffy jacket and I barely even got my heavyweight one out of my bag. Um, and I bought these like over boots that I really expected to have to use because I only had, um, single boots with like a inbuilt kind of gaiter. And I was like, oh man, I'm going to get the coldest feet. And I didn't. So I, I never bought those over boots out. So... I think we got pretty lucky up until that point with the weather and I would have like preferred, you know, to get a bit fucked earlier on to have better weather later than have good weather up to the, at the start and then, um, and then, you know, bad weather at the end. But you know, that's just the way it shakes out. That's mountaineering really, you know, it's part of the, the deal. So, uh, one night when you were up at halfway to high camp, Mm-hmm. Um, that's when you got the revised weather report? No, we were up at high camp by the Oh, time okay. We didn't camp halfway up. We just did a gear cache there. So, um, yeah, we made it all the way up to high camp, which is about 5,200 metres roughly, before we got sort of bad news and um, we decided we had to come down. Okay, and what was that process like? Your, your bail? Our bail. So we had four guys and one of the things that we did before we set out on this trip, which I would totally recommend to anybody, is just to like establish your expectations before you go and what your like margins for risk are and you know what you're willing to give up to get certain things done. So um we decided straight away early on that any decision that we were going to be making that was to do with the tactics and to do with the, um, I guess, the overall running of the the trip was going to have to be a unanimous decision. So we were all going up or none of us are going up. You know, it wasn't like, oh, Bill feels like going up, but we're all going to stay behind and leave him to go do that thing. You know, it's like, no, we're, we're all going up or we're all going down, you know. So... And one of you did want to continue and risk it despite the fact that they, you knew the weather was potentially going to turn. Well, right, and that was Bill, right? So Bill was, um, as I said before, Bill's actually passed away now, but Bill was like an amazing athlete um, and he could not be affected by altitude at all. Like it was just did not do a thing to him. I and think you've like, described him as a demigod, right? I did. He 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 was, you know, he... He's an amazing dude. And he, he was just like, again, like we were all off the couch and he was just in such good shape. And um, he was just one of those people who really annoy you because he's really good at whatever he puts his hand to, you know? So it's like, it's like, oh, I started weightlifting and suddenly I'm jacked and like lifting like the, the biggest weights in the world or whatever. It's like if he had wanted to play soccer or if he had wanted to play fucking badminton, you know, he would have been good at anything because he's just an athlete, you know? But he wanted to be a climber and he wanted to be a high altitude climber. You know, that's what he was into because high altitude didn't do anything to him and he could climb well and fast and strong without acclimatizing and just up he goes, you know, whereas me, I'm like really not great at altitude. Like I'd say I'm not terrible, but I'm sort of like, um, lower middle class, shall we say, you know, which is, um, is a little bit frustrating for me sometimes, but it's more frustrating for the people I'm with who acclimatize better and faster, you know? And because we did make that decision that we were going to do everything together, um, he was like, I want to go up. You know, I think we can do it. And I just said, no fucking way, dude. Like, I can't do it. 
um, and Alex, who I knew probably couldn't do it, and Adam, who probably couldn't do it, and they potentially didn't want to say that and didn't want to be a bummer, you know, but I was not afraid to kind of go, yeah, we're not, like, we're not able to do that. We need another day to rest, to acclimatise before we go up, and if we wait that day, then we're going to get smashed by the weather on the way down, and this is not where we want to be. Like, at 5,000 metres, getting hit by a storm that's just coming straight off the ocean, you know? So it's not just that you're high up, it's that that terrain is quite exposed. So that's why they call 14 camp basin camp, because it's in a big, humongous bowl, yeah? And high camp is just on the shoulder of the mountain, so it's just getting whacked. So, yeah, I was like, yeah, nah, basically. And have you always been comfortable with expressing those sorts of opinions, being the one to call it, even when you know that other people want to go up and sensing that, you know, other people might want to bail and you're the one that speaks up? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I'm not sure if I can give you like a concrete answer that you might want, but um, generally speaking... I think that I am quite forthright in those like those decision making processes because I tend to not um, put too much stock on what like people think about me. So in that instance, for example, I wasn't worried if he like wanted to think I was a pussy because I knew that what I was doing was a safety based decision and that you know being it doesn't matter if you're strong or if you're like brave or whatever if you're getting smashed by a storm on the highest mountain in america you know like it just doesn't it doesn't you know it doesn't make you any a better person or whatever so i was pretty comfortable with my decision but it might come down to who i'm with and um and the dynamic of the team whether or not i'm um more willing to voice my opinion and i think a lot of times it would have something to do with the level of experience within that group so we all went into that to that adventure as equals um, and that's why we made that sort of decision that everything would be unanimous so it's like there wasn't really one person there with more experience than the other person Um, so I would think that probably Bill and I were the most experienced but in equal terms so it wasn't like I was looking to someone of more experience to guide my decision making. I was like, well, we are the guys to make this decision and I'm calling it as a big fat no, you know? So if I was with a group and I was with someone of more, um, a better pedigree in the mountains and who um, had more information or something like that, or just more experience, then perhaps my, yeah, my, my forthrightness with that decision making would have been a bit less for sure and how did bill take it when you said emphatically no he took it really well because i think that he was he knew that it wasn't going to happen but he wanted to give it a red hot go you know um and when we just said that look we don't think it's safe like that was enough for him you know and he really took it quite admirably, I think, because a lot of people maybe wouldn't have, you know, a lot of people would have stomped their foot and had a bit of a tanty and, and all the rest of it and said, tried to argue. Um, but he really just said, you know, you make some valid points and even though this is not what I want to do, that's what we're going to do. So, um, yeah, he took it on the chin really well. And it was, it was sort of like... Um, I don't know, it showed, it showed the strength of his character, I think, mm. you know. Yeah, yeah, totally. So talk me through your descent. Were you expecting the bad weather to kick in as you were going down? No, we knew that we had some time. We just knew that we didn't have time to get up and back and down, right? So we knew that we, we actually had a really chill... Um, and I rewrote the chapter in the book a little bit about this because I wanted to talk about a little bit more about our way down because it kind of like just painted a bit more of a picture. But in the end, I decided it wasn't really like relevant to the story. So I cut a lot of stuff out. 
But you can um, talk about it now. Here I am. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can listen to my irrelevance all night. Um, but yeah, the the, uh, the we like chilled out that night. We like had a big dinner. We were like, well, we bought three days up of food up here, and we're not going to eat it all. So we just had like a massive feed, and you know, we'd been like on not low rations until there, but like you're always hungry because you're always burning like thousands and thousands of calories every day. So we had this massive feed and then we wake up late and it's always late because it's always daylight, right? So <laughs> you wake up in like, I don't know, 10 o'clock in the morning or something. And, oh, get up now. Pack up the tent. Down we go. And we... We kind of felt like maybe we had time to, like, do it halfway, like, go down halfway and then, like, make it a bit more relaxing. But we also just thought, well, what's the point? Like, let's just truck it on down here, out of here, you know, and just um, do it all in one push. Which is kind of funny because you're walking down in, like, one day what it's taken you to walk up, like, two weeks, you know. But you're all acclimatised and you're walking into big fat oxygen, you know, down the bottom and you're, like you're walking downhill the whole time, you know. So we come down to 14 camp and we pick up some gear there um, and then we walk back down to uh, Motorcycle Hill and then we walk down that and we we go down to 11 camp and we pick up some gear there because we've got gear like all over the mountain and you've got to bring it back, you know. But it's it's stashed there for your your way back kind of thing. So you know where it is and you you mark it and everything. And then we walk down to Ski Hill and then... um, that's kind of like you're well off the mountain by then. You're in the glacier down below, and um, there's this uh, there's this like guided party, and they've got this big tent set up like Taj Mahal, you know. And the guide comes out and he's like, "Oh, you guys, uh, you guys taking off, huh?" And I was like, "Yeah." And he's like, oh, "I think that's a good call, you know." So we were thinking, "Oh, this is you know, vindication a little bit." Um, and he's like, "Would you like some ravioli?" And he gives us this humongous pot of ravioli. And I'm talking like, you know, you could sit in this pot. It's like (laughs) huge. And there's just like four, you know, ravenous, disheveled, disgustingly smelling men, like quibbling over pasta, you know, like, and like, you know, like, I don't know, like jackals or something or hyenas or whatever, just like snapping at each other and eating this um, pasta. It was quite a deranged scene, you know? And then, um, but it made us feel really good. We were like, and this, we'd been going for like 10 hours or more at this stage and picking up stuff as we go. And we were just like, oh, I'm refueled. It's amazing, you know? So, and then we, uh, we sat there a while. We had, we brewed up and we had some tea or coffee or something like that. And then we walked, you just walk over these like quite flat kind of areas of the glacier um, for quite a while. And it was really beautiful. The twilight is just, yeah, it was just like really magical moment. You know, you, sort of you're so focused on the goal and you're so focused on what you're there to do that sometimes you forget to appreciate those little moments of just like real you know you're you're out there in the wilderness and it's just you and some of your friends and the the landscape is just incredible and it's things that people don't get to see you know like you can think about you know the handful of people on this planet that'll get to be in a similar circumstance and you're just you're like, oh, I'm pretty lucky, you know. So that was really nice. And then the sun came up and we had to start going uphill. And then I, I got cranky again. And then, <laughs> so my moment of like serenity was over. But um, yeah, there's this, there's this hill right near the, um, the, the airport, they call it, which is just, you know, a flat bit of the glacier. Um, and it's called Heartbreak Hill because at the end of the trip, the last thing you want to do is walk up another hill and it's just that last little thing you've walked downhill the whole way and then you have to walk up this bastard of a hill at the end and um yeah it's uh it's not too bad but it's not what you want and um you saying it's not too bad makes me think it might be terrible it's really not too bad yeah it's really not too bad it's like it yeah it is just a real kick in the nuts at the end of a day you know like you don't want it to be there and you're just like why are you here? Why do you exist? Why couldn't the camp be lower? Not before the hill. Or before the hill, sorry. You know, not after the hill. And um, you are pulling a sled, though. You know, so it is like any pulling a sled up up any incline is not fun. 
So, um, anyway, we got there to the airport, and that whole trip from the high camp to the airport, we'd done in 16 hours. And when did the weather kick in? The weather, not long after that, um, as I... I had to kind of go back through my notes to to actually remember this because as I wrote in the in the in the book um my memory of it is like it was almost immediate like the weather was just like it was like a movie like cinematic thing like like we get down and and then there's like it's really dramatic and the the wind's tearing at us and we're setting up camp and in reality like that is not what <laughs> happened at all because you said bill commented when you were down at the bottom that yeah. denali still looked clear like you still could have made it to the summit yeah it was like a beautiful day like it was like that after the sun came up because it d- doesn't take long it's maybe an hour of that twilight there and he was like oh man we could have done it like look at that it's like it's perfect up there, you know, like I bet people are summiting today, you know, and I was like, fuck, maybe he's right, you know, and so we set up our tent, I mean, it was too late, you know, and then really, like a couple of hours later, we started seeing winds hooking up the top, and I was like, Bill, come and, come and check this out, bro, like, it is nuking up there, like, and it's, you could start to see just the, like that streamer, if you've ever been to like an alpine environment, like, and you've got high winds up top, you'll see like the snow just blowing off the summit, you know? So it's like a, it's like a streamer or it's like a meteor kind of tail or something like that. It's just blowing off into space. And you know, if it's, it's starting to get windy down low a little bit. And I'm like, man, you know, if it's windy down here, like it's horrific up there. So we all just kind of went, ah, okay. We may have made a pretty good call here. And, I think not too long after that, I can't remember exactly, but it sort of really started to cloud over. Um, it stayed windy. It snowed a fair bit, but not a heap. Um, but it definitely snowed more higher up. Yeah, we got... Um, we didn't have to do much digging out of the tent or anything like that, but we were definitely not going outside. Like, it was not nice, like, T-shirt weather outside. You know? And you couldn't escape from the glacier because no flights could get in. That's absolutely right. So we were just stuck in our tent, um, which is fun at first, I guess. Like when you got four dudes and you're like on your like bro holiday, basically, like in the tent. But after like, you know, and you're just having jokes and I don't know, listening to music and stuff like that. And then after two or three or four days being in a tent with like four dudes is like not <laughs> it's let's just say it's not fun anymore you know um and but yeah we were just in there until until the plane got out our pilot was like amazing we somehow jagged it on both um in and out but the guy who picked us up and dropped us in was um his name's Paul um, oh, I can't remember his last name, but he's like an absolute legend of like the Talkeetna bush piloting scene. And um, Paul Roderick, I think is his name. And he f- has flown in like all the best alpinists, like, you know, Mark Twite, Steve House, all these, these kinds of guys. Like, um, and he was just like the coolest customer. Like he's flying us out there and he's like, I swear to God, all he was doing was twisting this roller blade wheel on the roof right it was like attached to the roof and i swear to god it was a rollerblade wheel and he was twisting it and that moved the plane somehow <laughs> and he was eating a fucking bowl of cereal so like we're flying you know full on our like our like our um <laughs> our like windscreen is like full of the alaska range you know and it's like denali's just towering above everything and this motherfucker is just sitting there eating a bowl of cereal like no hands nothing it was amazing he was great but um yeah he picked us up um on the way out as well i think but he definitely dropped us off obviously the ascent on the west buttress of denali didn't work out yep but that wasn't the end of your experience at denali was it 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 was the end of my experience for that journey yeah but um i I guess I subscribe to this kind of like uh, vaguely hippie notion that we we all have these connections with landscape and stuff like that. And 
I I just know that some landscapes speak to me more than others, you know. And there's places I've been, and if I can use an example, I um I went to I did a big trip in 2018 through South America. We started in America. We worked our way down. Um, and a good example is El Potrero Chico, which is a, a sport limestone multi-pitch climbing area in Mexico. And I had the greatest of times. Um, I climbed many routes. Uh, I drank many margaritas. And I ate lots of excellent, cheap Mexican food. And I didn't get any food poisoning. So it was an amazing trip. Um, and I don't need to go back because it's kind of just like one and done for me. Like it was somewhere I've been and there are so many other places in the world that are like, that are on my list or that are calling out to me or whatever. Now, I would say that about 90% of places I've been, but there's a few places on earth that when I go there, I know I need to go back, right? So Arapiles is one of those places for me. Um, Red Rock Canyon in Nevada is one of those places for me. Uh, And... Denali is one of those places for me. So I don't know exactly what it is because they're all very different um, styles of climbing and very different um, experiences and landscapes and stuff like that. But there's just something about the confluence of um, the climbing and the natural environment and the people you meet there potentially and the weather and, you know, everything that means that's quite like a special area for you and it's just got that little bit of um you know it's just there's a little bit of it left in your heart you know so when you leave you think to yourself oh man i gotta get back there sometime and it's like that's what denali was for me and it sort of has really um been a driving force in my climbing to improve enough that i can go back and climb a route there a harder route in good style and there's a specific route that you want to climb there, isn't there? There is. I, my, it's one of my dream climbs, you know, and I, and I think it's an achievable dream, but to uh, climb the Cassine Ridge, which, um, for those who don't know, it's um, the guy who did a lot of the early climbing and surveying of Denali, this guy called Bradford Washburn, and he was like, man, this is the line, you know, this thing is the king line on Denali. And it is, it's just like aesthetic, it's like this ridge that just soars up from basically the base to the summit. It's got technical difficulty, it's not too hard, it's like 5'8 climbing, which is about 16 in Eubank. Um, and, but you know, you're at 4,000 metres when you're climbing that. Um, and it's got steepish ice, um, and... It's huge. It's like two and a half thousand meters in length. So, you know, you're starting pretty high up. You're ending up at basically tops out exactly at the summit of Denali, which is cool. And um, yeah, depending on how, you know, good or not good you are is how long it'll take you. So the first ascent party, oh, it took them like four weeks or something like that or something ridiculous. And it's been done by Colin Haley in, I believe, just over eight hours. So those are the um, the current, like, you know, spans of how long it might take you. But most mortals could expect to probably do it in about three or four days, I think, is, is about standard. So, um, you know, that's hauling all your gear. It's it's setting up camps. It's, um, it's, it's very much in Alpine style, but it's... Um, and it's not an outrageous objective, but it is quite beautiful and it is quite... Um, it's challenging enough and committing enough that it's still something of a trophy route, you know, um, and not something that should be taken lightly. Um, but yeah, I'm really drawn to aesthetics and it's nothing if not aesthetic. When do you plan to go back and try that? My plan was to go next year, um, 2021. <sighs> yeah. So, and that was like, I had set for myself this arbitrary time frame of like, all right, by the time I'm 35, I'm doing it. And um, I'll be 35 next year. And that was going to be my year to go to Cassine. And I think I'm ready. Like, I think um, I could have had a little bit more time at the end of this year to go to New Zealand and do a little bit more alpine climbing and a bit more technical alpine climbing. But 
Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's just another failure in the bank, isn't it? Like, I didn't quite make it to that arbitrary, you know, time frame. But you've got to look at that in a positive light and think, well, that's an extra year to, to get even better. And then when I get there, um, it's just going to go, like, smooth, you know, smooth as shit through a goose. So <laughs> the uh, the um, it's not the end of the world. I think that 2021 is not going to happen, but, you know, maybe the year after, maybe the year after that. I'm not that fussed. What is really important to me is having had that goal and how that has, you know, shaped my climbing. And, you know, that means I've spent more time ice climbing. I've spent more time in alpine environments and I've seen these beautiful places and met cool people as a result of that. Do you think returning to Denali, knowing that you had to bail off the first time, does that change your headspace going into an objective? In what way? Does it make you more apprehensive? Does it make you want the summit more? Or does it not have any effect on you at all? Um, I do. It's, I don't know. It's this, it's really weird sensation of, of wanting it and not wanting it sort of thing. Because it's like having failed to climb the West Buttress really means not a lot to me. You know, like that 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 we didn't make it up the top like so be it it just i am really confident and comfortable in that we made the right decision and that's what's more important to me than than making the summit so i guess going back there if i'm honest like yeah it's gonna put this like extra i guess sense of like pressure i guess to 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 top out um but I'm pretty good at compartmentalizing that stuff. So I think that I can acknowledge that that's this like, not demon, but a little like, you know, little voice in me and be like, yeah, I hear you, but that's not that important. You know, what's important is coming back with all your toes and your fingers still on your hands and coming back with your friends as friends, you know, and just the memories that you make along the way and whether it takes you another couple of goes like you know whatever but the other thing about the casino in particular is that once you are halfway up that thing it is a pretty pretty committing route so that's part of the appeal a little bit is that like once you've once you've pulled the trigger on it you you're probably going to the top you know certainly if you've made it high up on the ridge you're going to the top you know it's going to be easier to do that than to get back down you know so that might steer me a little bit towards the summit, that kind of, that fact there, you know. That's the thing about mountaineering and, and perhaps something that maybe anybody who's not done it doesn't really understand. It's not necessarily, I mean, your success is so not assured and it generally comes down to um, objective hazards or um, just like chance sometimes. You know, and it's like one of those things is just a big piece in the puzzle of getting that objective done, you know. So it's like it only takes one little error or one little logistical fuck up to start a chain of events that means that you don't summit, you know. And you, you know, when you think about somebody once said to me, they're like, oh, I don't, I, I wouldn't like it because I wouldn't like mountaineering because what I like about climbing is the puzzle. You know, I like the, I like the problem solving of doing the route, you know, and they were talking about sport climbing and I like thinking about where I need my hands and where I need my, you know, where I need my body and everything like that. And I was like, yeah, it's exactly like that, but it's on a macro scale, you know? So it's ex all that stuff, all that puzzle and strategy and tactics and stuff. It's all exactly that. It's still climbing, you know, but it's just on, such an like exploded scale like it's like blowing up a photo you know it's huge and it's it's hard to keep all of those things in your head you know this podcast is called the bail list but this is actually the first bail story specifically bail story that we've done oh well you know if you want someone who's done a lot of bailing, then uh, I'm, your, I'm your guy. Well, that's why I started this podcast, because I too have done a lot of bailing in my life. Um, but one of the things that you said about this is that this story is 
an objective failure. Mm -hmm. But then I read something that you wrote um, that really resonated with me, and it's this. Talking about failure, you said, there is no greater gift that a climber can receive. Than failure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I truly believe that, you know. I think that it's all perspective, you know. Like, you can take... The problem is that our culture has an aversion to failure and failure is seen as probably like shameful or bad or it's, it's got, definitely got negative connotations, right? And I think that's part of, in our culture, in Western culture at least, part of that is because we measure things to say whether we've made a benchmark or a success or whatever, okay? So it's like, did you pass your English exam? You know, if you didn't, you're a failure and failure is bad, you know? Yeah, you know, like that is, I guess, in a way saying that you haven't learned anything or you haven't learned enough, you know? Where climbing isn't that cut and dry, you know? So it's like there's no pass-fail marks. There's not, um, and I would argue that the only real failures are when you don't learn. So the thing for me is that of all the times that I've failed on either an individual route or, um, you know, an expedition in general, or maybe it's personal failure, maybe it's an objective failure, um, who knows? Like, those things have been the most powerful for me because they have taught me so much. And if I can use an example, like, obviously, uh, like, just a shorter example, obviously this one in general, the Denali story, is a big, um, a big example of that and it really shaped me as a climber for the following half decade um but a really good example is when i went to el chalten in 2018 i didn't know if i'd be able to to climb there um uh, at all because i just sort of was potentially out of my league and we climbed one route successfully and i thought man that's awesome we can climb stuff and then the second route i got a lot out of it and i you know, it was probably one of the more meaningful climbs of my life. But then the third route that we tried, we were there for a month and the weather's bad. But the third route we failed. And I thought to myself at the time, I'm like, I'm glad I succeeded on those other two routes, but I'm also glad that this one turned out a failure. Because I think a third success would not have taught me anywhere near as much as a failure did at that point. And what I learned in that specific instance was like conditions, approaches, um, you know, the types of objectives you should be picking for your partner, for yourself, for the, for the time period, for like what's, what's relevant in that environment at the time. So, um, I learned a lot from that and more than I would have had I succeeded on that route, I think. So yeah, does that, am I talking around in circles a little bit? No, I get the sense that this experience, your first attempt at, climbing Denali was a bit of a crystallizing moment for you in realizing that it's not all about reaching the summit it's not all about mm. ticking that box is that a fair assessment it's definitely fair I mean it's like again if I can put this into like a sport climbing perspective people often say half jokingly but it's actually true they're like if you're not falling you're not climbing hard enough yeah so if you're not trying hard routes and you're not falling off them and you're climbing everything you get on then what are you doing you know are you getting any stronger or are you just climbing things you know you can climb so this might seem like an extrapolation of that to be like in a alpine sense or in a even in a like macro like my climbing journey sense you know like which is you know it's quite a long journey um then you know that failure is me pushing my limits and being either told this thing's way outside your limit back it off or this thing's just at the cusp you know and that's where you should be going because that's where the adventure is you know you don't want everything to be assured success and you don't want everything to be an assured failure you want that that bleeding edge, you know, of like where the impossible and the possible 
are just like you know kissing kind of thing because that's where the magic is so um i think that that's what it taught me that whole experience is that you that's where adventure is is that that you know is in the in the margins of possible and impossible and it also taught me that from every failure you need to you need to not only accept that it happens but you actually have to embrace it and think to yourself well this even though it's not my ideal outcome is a is a good outcome because the only bad outcome is you didn't learn anything so saying to yourself okay what did i learn you know using that failure to um, fuel your growth and to turn you into a better person a better climber a better whatever it is you know it applies to any sport it's not just climbing or any really pursuit in in human endeavor you know one of the key skills i think in any adventure climbing and you sort of touched on this earlier but i think it is underrated is the ability to express when you're not comfortable or when you think something is you know past the limits of what you can do for example bill wanting to push for the summit and you saying I'm not going to be able to do that within the window of time that we have. So how do you develop that skill? Because I think it is a skill, firstly, knowing what that limit is, and secondly, being able to articulate it to others in a way that you feel comfortable without pissing anyone off. Sure. Well, I mean, that's, I guess, one of the beautiful things about climbing is that it demands a lot of skills. And a lot of those skills are transferable and applicable to real life, you know? So it's not this standalone thing that doesn't make sense, you know, in the context of your real life. And that, that basically what you're talking about there or the question you're asking is like, how do you have emotional intelligence, you know? And how do you have interpersonal skills, you know? And you can only get those things by developing them and by practicing them just like anything else, you know? So... I had done a heap of like expedition, not necessarily mountaineering, but expedition life, really. It's like I, before the climbing, I was in the army, you know, so I was used to living in the field with, you know, a small team of men, generally men, and living in close quarters and having to, you know, obviously the dynamic in a, in a military environment is very different to how it is in a climbing environment. But there are some similarities there, you know. So I was used to living outside and I was used to living with a group of people and having to, you know, make that tribe work, you know, for lack of a better word. So I guess I just extended that into my expeditions and whether that was mountaineering or hiking or whatever it is, a lot of the expeditions I did were quite long, Um, you know, some two weeks like minimum, but generally up to three or four or five weeks, you know. A lot of times so learning to live with someone in quite um demanding circumstances you know is 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 an art and it's not something you do well straight away it's something you have to work on and i think that's why um that's one of the things i like about that sort of style of climbing and it is one of the things that people miss like when people ask me about mountaineering and about expeditioning and stuff like that and they maybe perhaps don't get it if they are a sport climber or a boulder or or even just like a single pitch kind of like around here like a trad climber who goes to frog um there it's hard to explain unless you've been there and i just think that unless you're willing to embrace some of those different aspects of climbing and and what those can can bring you're kind of missing out on some of the richness that climbing actually can offer you because there is a lot more to it than you know doing sick heel hooks and stuff like that you know so although those are very cool (laughs) heel hooks are sick (laughs) um and what about for people who want to get into this kind of stuff want to do more mountaineering Mm. or perhaps have done a little bit um and are not as much of a badass as you are what are the skills that people need for a big objective like denali um it's a really good question and it's a very hard answer for an Australian, you know. It's like, how do you become a good Australian mountaineer? Well, 
that's 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 a tough cookie right there you know so i mean i guess the answer generally has been go overseas go to go to new zealand you know and and learn to be a mountaineer there but in all honesty new zealand is quite a difficult place to climb and it's it's got really bad weather so you're probably better served using your time even though it's not as close going to places that are a little bit more user friendly so places like chamonix and places like um peru is pretty good the weather's always good and the access is decent um and places like that, maybe some of the places in the States, um, Cascades, things like that, um, are good places to get the technical skills. Um, but in terms of the mental skills, you can develop those some in Australia. And I think that you can suffer anywhere, <laughs> you know, and that's the key is like learning to love suffering. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff you can do by just, putting a backpack on and getting lost in in Australia you know like or there's plenty of places that are quite wild and remote and you know and demand um, you know a little bit more tenacity to get there you know and you can develop your um, long route experience your like traditional climbing experience on you know adventurous routes and stuff like that and like I honestly still think for me that Tipugagan and uh, some of the other, you know, adventurous mountains we have around here, but particularly that one is one of the best little training grounds for like someone who wants to get into alpine climbing because you like without actually alpine climbing, you know, um, because you need that mental resilience to climb some of those old school scary routes and you need that sense of we're on our own here, even though you're just like you know, 50 metres off the deck and, and able to call a chopper in. Um, you don't want to be the guy on the news getting rescued. So you're going to... But if you need to, you should always call for a rescue. <laughs> I'm just going to put that out there. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, um, the, you know, the gold standard is to, is to rescue yourself. Yeah. But if you can't, then I don't think you should hesitate to use the services we have. But yeah, you know, bad rock, shit gear... Long runouts, uh, tricky route finding, and just all the mental resilience that comes from dealing with those things that I've learned from climbing on Tibro and to a certain extent Mount Barney and places like that. It's like those things serve you so well overseas. And it's like you go, my friend um, who has not been on this podcast, but I'm sure he will be at some point, um, the legendary yeah, I, Alex Mugino. I think he's uh, made, a, made a cameo in I, episode oh, one, is that as so? did you. Oh, really? Kyle and okay. Dan's episode, yeah. Right. Okay. Well, um, yes, the, the one and only Alex Mujinal, he um, said to me, we put up a new route on Tibro one year, and he said, oh, this will get me, like, you know, this will get my head right for going to El Chalten or something like that. And I was like, dude, this is way scarier than anything I climbed over there. So, yeah, like, if you can do it here, um, and I think, you know, there's there's other skills you know obviously there's the ice and snow and all that sort of thing and 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 whatever but yeah if you can do like hard chossy remote climbing here um and you know you want to put yourself out there a little bit go do some like expeditions they don't necessarily have to be climbing related but you know hiking kind of expeditions in tassie and places like that and the 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 high country down in um in vic and um, new south wales it's like i think there's a lot to be found here if you're willing to look at it through slightly different eyes, you know? Because I know we always kind of want to focus on on rock climbing. We tend to focus on, like, the actual technical skill of it. But um, you do have to develop those other, I guess, mental and um, logistical and, um, em- yeah, as we talked about, emotional intelligence and... Just, yeah, just resilience. I think that's, like, a big thing that's missing in, not in the climbing community per se, but in the broader community is, you know, personal resilience. And I see that a lot working with, um, I work with kids in, like, school camps and stuff like that. And one of the things, the main drives that we're trying to teach them is just a little bit more um, resilience and, yeah, you know, it's a bit of mental t- mental and emotional toughness, you know. Embrace the fails and the bails. You got to, man. You got to. Uh, <laughs> you got to love the fails. 
You want to fail, but not too often. (laughs) (laughs) Ryan Siachi, thank you so much for sharing your story with me. Thanks for having me. It's It's been a fun little ride, I think. That was Ryan Siachi, everybody. Quite the wise man. Check out his blog, zenandtheartofclimbing.com. He's written some really great stuff. Books, quality gear reviews, and my personal favourite, he's currently releasing a guide to 50 classic climbs of Australia, most recently featuring the very epic Conquistador at Frog Buttress in southeast Queensland. Make sure you also check out The Bail List on Facebook and Instagram at The Bail List to see what's coming down the pipeline and stay listening for this snippet from next month's episode. Thanks for listening to The Bail List. So, yeah, I just tucked in tight and closed my eyes and honestly did not expect ever to open them and I actually did have I remember thinking in a slight thing is please kill me if this is going to hit me please kill me because I just had images of how mangro- how you know how gruesome it could be if you did survive something like that